0: You're listening to Lozano-Smith's podcast, where we discuss important changes in the law and legal decisions that affect public agencies.
1: Hi, this is Sloan Simmons. The podcast you will be listening to today uh, was originally recorded after AXA's Every Child Counts Symposium, or actually during the symposium, um, live there uh, at the at the conference we were unable to publish podcasts at the time uh, due to the advent of the covid-19 pandemic and so the information and discussion you you will hear today was actually originally recorded back in february uh, we have uh, engaged our speakers to provide supplemental information or further discussion on this topic in light of uh, suicide prevention issues, concerns, best practices, um, in light of the the impact in that area that the COVID-19 pandemic and school closures has had on our states and nation students. So uh, we hope you enjoy. And um, again, this will start with an original recording from February of this year. And then at the conclusion of that, that recording, we have an update that relates directly to experiences following or during this this period of of COVID-19 and the the public health crisis uh, in the area of suicide and suicide prevention. Hope you enjoy. Welcome to another Lozano-Smith podcast. I'm your host this morning, Sloan Simmons, with a special podcast episode from Lozano-Smith today as we're joined by two, two guests who are on location at AXA's Every Child Counts annual symposium. Um, The topic that we'll be talking about today is suicide prevention, one that pairs well with the strand of presentations that our Lozano-Smith attorneys are giving um, at the AXA ECC conference. Uh, Our two guests are one, Jennifer Baldessari, senior counsel out of Lozano-Smith's Walnut Creek office, one of our experts in special education and student issues, also presenting and in attendance at AXA uh, this week. And we're joined by our special guest, Nathan Marino, who is the director of special education at Soledad Unified School District down in Monterey County. Uh, Before becoming director for the district, um, Nathan's had a long career as a teacher in special education, including uh, grades K through 12, uh, assisting and educating students with mild to severe disabilities, including those with um, the most severe emotional disturbance issues. Um, In his current role as director of special ed with Soledad, uh, he continues to work closely closely with the Monterey County Behavioral Health Department to implement support for students struggling with social-emotional issues. So a a perfect guest to have with us today to talk about suicide prevention. Jennifer, Nathan, good morning. Good morning. Sloane.
2: Good morning. Thank you for that introduction. Um, We are happy to be here at AXA. It's a gorgeous day in Palm Desert. And... A lot of the focus from this conference has been about mental health, so I do think it's timely for us to talk a little bit about health um, and risk assessments, mental health, all of that good stuff. One case that seems to continually come up that I've heard a few people kind of present on, I've seen some materials about, and even I presented on yesterday was on Golden Plains. Golden Plains is a case from 2019, and I think it's fairly informative, especially when we're talking about mental health and risk assessments.
1: Jennifer, this is a, this is a due process case before OAH?
2: Yes, it's a due process case before OAH. It was litigated just last year. And um, first of all, it was a child who was identified as special needs. So the student had a specific learning disability, that's SLD, and had repeated kindergarten twice, went through and repeated, I believe, second grade twice. So he's had significant academic needs throughout his career. However, now we're seeing the student moving from the middle school to the high school level. And as you move from middle school to high school, there's a lot more kids, there's a lot more going on. So the student became increasingly anxious about the behaviors of other high schooler kids. And in particular, there was testimony in that due process proceeding from teachers and staff about how the climate of that school wasn't great. How kids were pushing each other or bullying each other. One child even threw a book at a teacher, which uh, distraught even further this boy's mental health. So what's happening now is we're we're seeing this child already eligible for uh, SLD, but we are also seeing that he has this maybe mental health underlying mental health needs that are kind of cropping up at this point in time, right? Like the transition from. Middle school to high school isn't always easy. Now, that said, eventually one day he was in his resource teacher's classroom and started crying. And his resource teacher came over and said, Hey, what is it that I can do to help support you? What's going on? And this boy said, Well, my friends think I'm, quote, so weird that I should just kill myself. And maybe I should just kill myself. So, right there um, was a statement which is suicidal ideation, that's how we would categorize it essentially and what needs to be done after that statement happens is another thing and we're gonna get into that a little bit more but just to continue on with what this district did in this case according to how the judge wrote the uh, decision is not to conduct any risk assessment did not conduct an educationally related mental health assessment. So there was no real assessment done for social-emotional. In fact, the student had a triennial assessment completed right before that, and the triennial assessment did not look at social-emotional needs. So there's a little bit of a hole there. Um, My understanding from the case is that parents did ask for an assessment after the suicidal ideation statements came out and the district rather than assess for special ed or services for mental health decided to do a risk assessment instead so because the judge was extremely mad at the district in this case the judge said suicide alone suicide threats alone can trigger our obligation to conduct a mental health assessment so i think that's important to keep in mind and the seriousness of, of the issue we're here to discuss.
1: That's, that's a, a fascinating concept, and I know, Jennifer, Nathan, a lot of our clients, as we focus on suicide prevention as well as general ed interventions short of discipline that can result from emotional uh, and mental health issues, um, I think clients have overall done a better and better job at instituting interventions, including risk assessments, but I'm not certain that the bridge has clearly been built from there to child find and the and the special ed eligibility or, or criteria assessments that might lead from that and I know uh, that you two want to talk about that that more this morning but I want to ask you first from a practical perspective um, you know what have you seen what are the trends you're seeing in your district and otherwise uh, when it relates to mental health issues
3: So I've definitely seen a pretty significant increase in uh, risk assessments being completed throughout the district, especially more um, at the elementary levels. Um, And I think this is coupled with increased trauma that students are being exposed to and then coming to school with. And I think definitely there still needs to be training um, for our staff, but definitely working. I've worked closely with our county behavioral health department to provide trainings to our providers at our school sites, like our school psychologists and our school counselors and our administrators, which I think are a key component to this so that they're aware of what's happening, especially when a kid's going through an episode, it could look very extreme and kind of scary at times. Um, So people are at least familiar with what's going on, but it's definitely an increased trend. And talking to my colleagues at the conference today and other psychologists, it's it's an epidemic that's happening and throughout the state right now.
1: And Nathan, do you think that's driven by an a, an actual increase in, in students experiencing these symptoms and situations or a greater awareness by school officials and experts, psychologists, and folks in positions like
3: your own to the issue? I mean, from my perspective, I would say increased amount of trauma. I think we're pretty good at identifying, but the number of kids that are making suicidal ideation statements at school has definitely increased. Yeah, I would, I would say there's definitely been an increase in exposure to our students, um, which I think is a lack of parent education. But yeah, I would say definitely increased.
1: Interesting, and i and I, I put our, a little plug in. Um, Jennifer, you, you conducted, or we did another um, great podcast with a guest uh, back in the fall, that was a two-parter on school avoidance, which obviously fits directly into this whole framework.
2: I do think that Child Find is worth mentioning, and um, it it does get challenging, especially in cases and circumstances where there's a heightened uh, level of emotion that's be that's involved and inserted. So. When you're conducting assessments, generally you're hoping that you're not conducting them when a student's in an active state of psychosis. However, sometimes these are the kids who are claiming that they're going to hurt or harm themselves, and they are in an active state of psychosis. At that time, it might not be the best time to get the best information. So it may be appropriate to wait but you don't want to delay services for these students either. So it's a balancing approach for sure. But when we talk about Child Find, we're talking about the district's ongoing and continuing affirmative obligation to seek out and serve children with special needs. So, or or suspected disabilities. So if you suspect that a student has a disability, then our obligation would be to conduct assessments. Now, I think it's difficult when mental illness is a hidden illness, and it's hard to find. And unless you're talking to parents, like you're saying, having parent outreach and um, outreach even with your, your own staff, doing trainings, it is hard to understand, like, what are the triggers? What, can, what signs can I look for and help before we get to this place?
3: So I was just going to add, I think a lot of districts in California are moving towards multi tier systems of supports and really looking at how they can intervene before students have to reach a tier two or a tier three level of support. So I know a lot of districts are looking at universal screeners right now so that they can help identify more so the internalizers in schools. Obviously the externalizers are easy to um, pinpoint, but um, the ones that are silent that are not coming to school, that put their hoods on all day. Those are the the harder kids to pinpoint. So hopefully through mass universal screeners that districts are really looking at implementing and we could help identify more students with um, emotional issues.
1: That's a great point. That's a great, great point. D- Jennifer,
3: as we kind of think about how this often arises,
1: can you define for us a risk assessment? You know, when we have student behaviors that that leads to the need for district staff and it's in its risk or threat assessment or uh, you know, this can take various forms, but there's a risk assessment conducted based upon the student's behavior and a concern for the student or other's well-being.
2: Right. So a risk assessment is essentially an assessment that we're going to give to the student that asks what uh, the likelihood is, whether the student is going to harm himself or herself. So essentially, that's kind of in a nutshell. There's a lot of questions, there's a lot of staff and other people involved in this risk assessment, which Nathan can talk a little bit more about. But in terms of defining it, there's no real legal definition of a risk assessment. It is something that we want to complete. And from my practice, I've seen it, I've seen risk assessment standards or procedures different in different districts. I think that seems to be pretty common, but the common thread of the risk assessment is that we wanna get down, drill down to the bottom of, is this a student who really is at risk for suicide attempts?
1: Right, and I, I fully agree from district to district, you see a wide range of models, some formalized in 15 page memos, others that feel much more like they're on the fly. You know, with that in mind, Nathan, do you have recommendations from a, you know, a practical level uh, about completing a risk assessment with the student?
3: Yeah, absolutely. So I think it's important to keep in mind that risk assessments can potentially lead to a pretty traumatic event. Like if, if, if a 5150 has to be called, typically when I've done them, you know, parents can be very upset. The student can become increasingly aggravated and then it can cause a scene at school. So it is a pretty serious procedure that... We go through so essentially the risk assessment from my perspective is really looking at does the student have a plan if the student has a plan the likelihood of them actually doing it is extremely high and then are there any um factors like do they have friends at home that they could talk to do they have uh somebody from their local church so they have somebody an outlet that would decrease the amount the risk that the student would actually commit Typically, if what we see, if the kid has a plan, if the kid doesn't have any protective factors, then that would be a case that we would be extremely concerned about um, and could potentially um, call law enforcement or County Behavioral Health um, to write a hold, but because of the potential trauma and traumatic event, I would definitely recommend having two people in the room doing it, one who can actually write down what's happening and then the other one that can actually pay attention to the student and make sure the student feels like they're being heard and having administration aware of it um, because typically they're the ones that are going to be dealing with parents and the aftermath of what could happen. So for sure having two people in the room, making your site and district level administration aware of what's happening, notifying the parent Um, But sometimes that could get a little sticky if the parent is the reason why the student is exhibiting suicidal ideation. So, really having a team there to put it together and not just having one person holding that responsibility, I think is key.
1: Nathan is, is, as a matter of course, is a school psychologist um, or someone from that field, whether in-house at the district, through the county office of ed, through county mental health or even a private psychologist. I know some districts have contracted with private psychologists to participate in these teams. Is that always going to be, as a matter of course, one of your two participants, or is that not necessarily the case?
3: So ideally, we would want at least one to be a mental health professional, be it a school psychologist. So we contract with County Behavioral Health to do our risk. We do a risk assessment and training at least once a year. So they come in and they train our principals, site administrators, school psychologists, and um, and then our county behavioral health clinicians that we have on site. So ideally one from mental health perspective and then an administrator or somebody else or a school counselor. But there's been times when I, I had to do one um, last year where there was literally no, everyone was at trainings and it was me and a principal that did it. So ideally but i mean it's not required as long as you have two people there who have at least been trained to conduct a risk assessment i think that's fine
1: i don't want to take us down this rabbit hole now but i will mention i've, I've, I've noted uh, in in recent times some interesting issues that can arise with the nature and treatment of the resulting written conclusions or determination as to the risk assessment. And I go back to the point you raised, Nathan, that if the parents, uh, may be part of the issue, um, unique issues of potentially confidentiality that can come into play as to how do we treat what would otherwise seem to generally fall into the category of a student record, which parents would have the absolute right to access. But there's some unique issues that arise in that context, especially where um, the deductions made notes taken conclusions reached may reach back to and interact with the parents themselves. Um, again, I don't think we want to, I don't want to take us down that rabbit hole, but I just note that that's something that I think is an issue that is, is still, uh, the, the correct answer and analysis for is still kind of developing as, as, as the use of risk assessment and importance of it grows within our California schools. Could, could both of you address the, the overall importance of the risk assessment process?
2: Yeah, I can start. I do definitely see um, How important it is obviously based on this case that I was just talking about the Golden Plains case Where the judge basically said listen There wasn't a risk assessment done and there wasn't an ERMS assessment done. Nothing was done. This child had suicidal ideation was crying and saying that he should just kill himself. And it looks bad that nothing was done. So I do think it's important to look at, well, is there a plan in place? Like, is this student going to potentially harm himself or herself? And if that's the case, we need to be able to be ready to jump into action. So the importance really comes down to life and death of a a student.
3: And I would also recommend always contacting a mental health professional at the school site in order to determine if a risk assessment would suffice or if an ERM's assessment would be more appropriate based on the level of risk a student is in. And luckily, um, we have our county behavioral health therapists are able to write holds at our school site, so we don't have to necessarily call the police to come in and write our holds. I think for me, really those kids that you don't suspect that have mental illnesses. I was just talking to a psychologist last night and she said it was the quarterback of the football team and he was had straight A's and then he ended up committing suicide like I think his senior year and so just being really cognizant that it's not always the kids that are acting out that we really need right. to be focusing on how we're identifying um, our internalizers I think is a huge mm-hmm. concern.
1: Nathan, when you're considering, you know, district or school-wide trends or, you know, patterns that are coming up, um, you know, it makes me think of two things that I'd be interested of your thoughts on. One is obviously the, the, the show 13 Reasons Why on Netflix has, has gotten a lot of attention um, and there's been, you know, various views on it. One drawing attention to the subject, the other position being that it's, you know, in essence, a roadmap uh, for kids who are, who are struggling. Um, and then I also think of, you know, different districts are handling in different ways how to address when they receive word of, of comments or behavior exhibited on social media, which may suggest that there's an issue that needs to be addressed. How does that, how do? I mean, I'm interested in your comments on both of those concepts as it relates to how how your program looks at trends or how to respond to these issues?
3: So definitely, like certain sites are exhibiting more um, risk assessments, which happens. I mean, typically our high school is the most prominent one, but um, I know through like our LCAP and MTSS are really looking at providing more social-emotional learning and having our school counselors be more um, involved in providing either direct group supports or going into classrooms, but definitely um, working with your school counselors. I think they're a resource that might not be utilized to their fullest extent in a lot of districts, so really looking at the preventative side, training our staff on trauma-informed practices, our general ed teachers. I don't think teachers nowadays are learning enough behavioral strategies to work with the level of trauma that our kids are having nowadays, so really training our gen ed staff for signs of suicidal ideations or... And where to report it and, and so forth. So I think if we invest more at the the front will definitely help.
1: Nathan, when it comes to your, your, your general, uh, you know, general teaching staff and informing them and getting them on board and up to speed on these issues, what, what would your recommended frequency be for providing that type of training for, for teachers?
3: So definitely at the beginning of the year, for sure. And then we have, so we have two big PD days in our district. Um, and we usually bring in County Behavioral Health. So I would say that, and then each school site has their own area. So three of our elementary sites are really focusing on social-emotional learning. So they've contracted, they've invested a lot more resources into that area. But I think at least having a basic foundation at the beginning of the year and then a reminder mid-year would be at least the minimum for a district to.
1: Jennifer, I know there's been recent legislative movement, uh, in fact we talked about one of these bills with our student legislation roundup uh, with with Ruth Mendick and Amy Perry uh, about two months ago or a month and a half ago. Could you speak to those bills and kind of how they interact with suicide prevention, suicide prevention policies?
2: Yeah, I think we're seeing more and more focus just nationally on uh, suicide prevention, and even a song in the Grammys was a suicide prevention song. Or... So even in pop culture, I want to say they're trying to bring awareness to suicide prevention, that sort of stuff. Um, that being said, so there's two bills I'd like to talk about. One is AB 1767, and that's our pupil suicide prevention policies. So essentially what it does is it extends AB 2246 to grades one through six. And that goes into effect, my understanding, is on January 1st of 2020. So hopefully uh, all the schools are complying with having the extension of AB 2246 to grades one through six. The other one that I'd like to talk about is AB 34 which is a bullying and harassment prevention information, which essentially requires LEAs to post information on their websites regarding bullying and harassment prevention.
1: The, you know, consistent with those changes in the law and this increased focus that you two are describing, both by individual districts and nationwide and in the state, I would note that the CDE's resource page on suicide prevention continues to grow um, uh, on an ongoing basis and based upon the, the items there and Nathan, I'm not sure Jennifer, if either of you have recently been able to look at some of those, but there is a, a fairly large wealth of information that's been, uh, been posted by the CDE, including a, a model policy, which is one to look at in juxtaposition with CSBA's model, which also checks the illegal uh, boxes, but I think the the, the CDE model is perhaps more expansive as well as a number of resources from suicide prevention toolkits to uh, outside agencies and groups that can assist in this area. So uh, resources that folks should be aware of.
2: Right. Right. It's a great resource. I have taken a look at it.
1: So Nathan, you know, we've talked about the importance of risk assessment training to ensure that all staff are kind of aware of the warning signs, um, some of these legislative changes that are impacting this area. Uh, what would you say in terms of best practices to deal with, you know, assisting staff, family and community if, if an unfortunate incident of suicide does occur?
3: So districts definitely need to have be prepared, um, especially nowadays. So our district has contracted. It's called a Critical Incident Stress Management, which is a it's a national wide organization, and they work with multi uh, various different organizations from police and law enforcement and cities. But it's having a system in place to help either support grieving. So we like bring county behavioral health in if an incident occurs, so that there's someone for staff and students to talk to and get their emotions out and then also it's a program that essentially helps stabilize the district so that they can continue and get back into a routine again but definitely having staff trained or at least having a contract set up with the county department behavioral health agency so that the districts are prepared for if that if a student were to complete a suicide.
2: Yeah I mean I feel like it's really challenging to be in that state because it's a state of grieving and having to then yeah pull your staff and everybody back you know your school body back together and talk about it is a really challenging thing what have you done has that happened to you and what have you done to kind of solve that Mm
3: -hmm. so uh, thankfully we haven't had that in my tenure in Mm -hmm. in my current district um, but I know of other districts that have so I train um, our psychologist in this SISM intervention program and then so we do that every year
2: does your school psychs train anybody else
3: so no so it's, okay. it's a certification from them so okay. they're they take the lead and then other districts who have SISM trained people come so we support each other in Monterey County so okay. um, if something happens in Monterey Peninsula all the SISM trained people would be deployed to that location but yeah I think that's super and it, it happens every year that they get recertified Um, In case something happens, but yeah,
2: yeah, but that's a good way to pull a whole community Mm -hmm. together and yeah, yeah, and support each other, which is positive. Mm -hmm.
1: Nathan does the data and the kind of consensus show uh, whether or not, you know, there's an increased risk for further. Um, suicidal ideations for other students when one of their, their fellow students has, has done so. Yes,
3: absolutely. The research shows that once, once, somebody completes a suicide, the likelihood of somebody else completing goes up significantly. So really trying to mediate, mitigate that as soon as possible.
1: The, Jennifer, Nathan, this is a, a really serious and important subject. I really appreciate both of you taking your time, um, out of the, at the Every Child Counts Symposium to talk about it. I think this is a really great discussion and a wealth of helpful information. Um, something that all districts, school officials, mental health officials in California, throughout the country should have on their radar and not just have on their radar, but be taking proactive steps to address these issues and have the the relevant training and planning, um, and assessment programs and policies in place. So. I can't thank you enough uh, for joining me today. Thank you for listening to our original recording. As indicated at the, the top of this discussion, uh, we now have the benefit of a supplemental conversation uh, between Mr. Moreno, our guest, and Jennifer Baldessari as they talk about suicide prevention in the, in the age of COVID-19 and the public health crisis Uh, that has resulted, including distance learning, school closures, and the impacts of that situation on our students. So, um, to bring us up to speed, here is Jennifer and Nathan.
4: Hello, everyone. We're back with a quick chat to address how districts are uh, addressing suicide prevention and mental health issues during distance learning times. I am back here with Nathan, and I'd like to open it up with him uh, to kind of give us an outline about how his district is handling mental health issues during this time.
0: Thank you, Jennifer. So yeah, so um, our district is really looking at how can we ensure that students continue to receive the services prior to school closure. So we really work collaboratively with our service providers, both our in-district providers, such as our school psychologists and our school counselors, As well as our contracted providers from our county behavioral health department to ensure that the services students were getting continued to the best of their ability um, while they're at home. Um, So in addition to that we looked at our students that were presenting at risk prior to school closure and really making sure that we followed up with them um, to make sure they got the support and resources they need Um, really utilizing um, our liaisons to connect them to resources um, and then utilizing our own school staff um, to make sure that they're getting connected. Um, I think it's important that, you know, a lot of times triggers for students are coming from the home, so they don't necessarily have that outlet. So really making sure students feel connected with somebody from the school that they can um, communicate with and um, really talk their issues out with. Um, when uh, we're looking at the school closure and how we're addressing, like making sure we have current assessment data, um, you know, there were some cases that we had already started assessments on students prior to school closure. So I think it's really important for those kids to make sure that we continue to the best of our ability to get those assessments completed. So for example, I'm having my psychologists complete as much as they can Um, Through interviews with parents and students and teachers, other school personnel that had relevant information about the student, um, as well as sending home rating scales, um, looking at anxiety and depression to really try to get a really good sense of what's causing the students' mental health issues um, and to see how we could target interventions to support them. Um, And I think just a big key is keeping kids connected, even if it's with a teacher um, or anybody at the school site so that they have that um, feeling of support.
4: Yeah, I think that's a good point. I like what you said about the assessment piece. I know that districts are feeling a little crunched right now because they have a lot to do uh, in restructuring things from physical learning to now a distance learning model which does create a lot of um, issues, especially in the area of assessment. So trying to get as much of the assessment done as possible, maybe you can't get the in-person observations completed, and maybe that's something that needs to wait until after physical school's open. But um, if you are noticing that the student is becoming easily overwhelmed with uh, work that's being put in front of them or uh, they're seeming to not have the same stamina as in-person learning, then uh, it is something that an IEP meeting can be called remotely and virtually, and some accommodations could potentially be put in place. So, for example, some of these kids who are experiencing more heavy anxiety and depression than they uh, did before. An IEP meeting can be called and accommodations could be added to the IEP Some of those accommodations just rattling them off the top of my head could be extra time for assignments could be doing all of the even problems or all of the odd problems instead of um, the entire worksheet of problems, um, maybe additional time on tests, maybe you know use of um, some notes or something like that on a test would be helpful, just uh, some ideas, you know, to promote uh, less anxiety and a better mental health um, for the student. Another thing is uh, it's great that what Nathan mentioned was how his school psychologists and counselors are still reaching out to students, whether that be, and correct me if I'm wrong, Nathan, uh, general education students, 504 students, or special education students if uh, if they were experiencing any sort of um, mental health need prior to the school closure, that that um, individuals within the school system are still checking in with these families to make sure that the student is um, still receiving the, the supports that he or she needs. Um, reminding them that they do have the appropriate uh, coping skills and reinforcing those skills, making sure that, that uh, school counselors, teachers, anybody in the school system who's connecting with families are providing, uh, you know, positive sort of you can, you can work through this, we can get through this. Um, th- those positive sort of messaging so that students aren't ruminating on a negative talk or, or negative things that are happening. Um, encourage discussions about what's happening. I think that's also positive. Uh, Nathan, I'd like to ask you particularly, have you had any incidences where uh, in the midst of the school closure you have had a crisis to deal with? in terms of a mental health need for a child?
0: Yeah, so um, quite, actually right after we went into school closure, my psychologist started working with a student um, and in a session, I think it was like her third session, um, the student started um, expressing suicidal ideation to the degree that my therapist felt like um, they really needed to get law enforcement involved in which they ended up having to write a hold. So I think it's really important to understand like we're still, even though we're at home and we're distance learning, like we're still mandated reporters and we still have an obligation to make sure that our students are safe at home and not even just our mental health therapists, but I reiterate it with our school psychologists, with our speech therapists, our OTs, our teachers. Um, you know, when we're at home on a zoom call, we can see a lot of things, obviously um, intentional or unintentional. So it's important that all school personnel are really, Um, observant about that and really make sure that they're um, doing what they need to do to keep our students safe even when when they're at home.
4: Right, right. So I think all of this is really important stuff to talk about. I know we just wanted to add a quick couple minutes here on uh, this mental health, the mental health issues during distance learning times. And hopefully this helps kind of facilitate discussions within your own districts and provide some ideas. Nathan, do you have anything else?
0: Yeah, I would just say, the for me, the biggest thing is really working collaboratively with whatever resources you have in your community and get kids connected. I feel like it's during this time, a lot of agencies have really gone above and beyond to help support their community. So just creating connections and seeing how you can really
1: leverage the resources in whatever community you're in.
4: Great.
1: Thank you, Nathan. And, and for our listeners, I hope this was as insightful, um, and helpful as it was for me. Thanks for joining us. Uh, for those who are going to listen to this after their attendance of the Acts Every Child Counts Symposium, uh, thanks for joining us after the, the conference as well. And, uh, don't miss any Lozano Smith podcasts. Go to LozanoSmith.com forward podcast. There you will find, um dozens and dozens of other podcasts on topics for the k-12 educational settings special education cities counties special districts you name it um, and so thanks for joining us and jennifer nathan thank you very
2: much thank you sloan yeah
1: thank you
0: if you have any questions about this topic please contact the hosts of this episode or an attorney at any of our eight offices throughout california be sure to subscribe to our podcast on iTunes, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. As the information contained in this podcast is necessarily general, its application to a particular set of facts and circumstances may vary. For this reason, this podcast does not constitute legal advice. We recommend that you consult with your counsel prior to acting on the information you heard.